Joining us today on the show is a man widely regarded as one of the sharpest minds in swimming at the moment. He is a former king of Australian sprinting, winning five Australian championships and once holding the 50-metre national record at 22.07. He is a two-time Olympian, competing in the 2000 Olympics in Sydney and again in 2004 at Athens. Along with these fantastic accomplishments, he managed to finish his career with two World Championship medals, three Commonwealth Games medals and a bronze at the Pan Pacific Championships in 2002. Uh, not being done with swimming, though, in 2006, he went into coaching over in the U.S. at Auburn, Alabama. And in recent years, he has joined the team at Fitter and Faster as a development director of clinics and camps. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure to welcome to uh, Off the Block Swimming Podcast, Mr. Brett Hawk. How are you, mate? Good, mate. Thanks, Robbie. I appreciate the intro. Thanks for having me on the show, mate. Looking forward to it. Mate, always a pleasure and um, yeah, looking forward to having you on for a chat. Now for all the listeners out there, uh, I'm coming to you today from the studios in Sydney, Australia. Where have we caught you? Mate, right now I'm in Auburn, Alabama. It's 11 o'clock at night. I've been uh, bunkered in the house for the past four days going crazy. And like everybody else with the coronavirus, uh, you know, we've been shut down completely. So um just trying to figure out this new world that we're all living in and and um navigating through that and and luckily you know i do work from home um but you know with this with this lockdown kind of just felt like a prisoner in my own home for the past four days you know well as you mentioned there mate so much going on in the world right now with the coronavirus and competitions and training being shut down and people in lockdown like yourself and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I kind of think our podcast mine and yours are a really nice distraction from all of that um, but I think we should at mm. least touch on it before we move on so you know obviously you're over in America how's how have you seen the impact over there yeah it's been strange it's been a bit slow I think Americans were a little bit oblivious to it at first and a little bit slow to catch on and I still think there's still a lot more we can do over here in the U.S. um you know, people are still carrying on with their everyday lives where I think the world has got to the point where they realize, look, the only way we can contain this is if we all stay indoors and, and stay away from each other. Um, you know, every every day you read something where someone's had a contact with somebody and they've infected, you know, 30, 40 other people. And mm. um, so I think it really hit home for Americans, first of all, when Tom Hanks actually uh, was diagnosed down in Australia. Yeah. Uh, that kind of hit big news here, and then um, and then a basketball player over here got uh, got infected, and and that was kind of big news. And so I think uh, for for Americans, the vast majority, it really hits home when celebrities and sports stars are the ones that are being affected, and and now everybody's kind of taking notice. Mate, the Tokyo Olympics will it be on? And I guess the other question is, should it be on? Uh, sitting here today, I'd say no. I don't think so, mate. Um, it, it just can't. It can't happen. I mean, swimming's one of the biggest sports uh, at the Olympic Games, and and none of the swimmers are in the water right now. So I just can't see how it could possibly take place. Uh, first of all, all the all the trial events that are being uh, postponed and, and cancelled right now, um, and then and like I said, swimmers are just shut out of the pools completely. So. There's no way uh, that, that an event like that can take place, you know, four or five months from now. Um, maybe, maybe, yeah, it's about four months, isn't it? It's like really close. So 
uh, I think the IOC are going to have to make the, the decision to shut it down. And, mm. and there's a big push right now, especially coming from some of the top Americans, to you know obviously postpone it, but all the way till next year. So yeah. just give it a whole another year and let's let's get through it. But um, yeah, I just can't see it happening right now. I think that's the smart option, isn't it? Just to put it off and make the call and say 2021. Let's let's give it some time because otherwise, as you said, I, I'm with you. I don't see it actually happening. So what are we what are we putting off here? Yeah, I mean, it's just. Uh, I think I think it's look. The, the whole thing has changed day by day, and I think every day we're, we're coming to the new realization that this isn't going to be over anytime soon. So um, the smart thing is to to push it back, but we'll see. Uh, who's making those decisions? Uh, they're not always the smartest people in the room, so we'll uh, we'll find out we'll find out how it ends up. But uh, yeah, I really just can't see it happening right now. Mate, the second season of the ISL is gearing up to kick off in September as well, and I know this is a competition close to your heart, being a part of the LA Current on the coaching staff there. Do you see that being affected? Have you heard any sort of measures in place? I know, obviously, football leagues around the world are currently playing to empty stadiums. Has there been talk about that, or is that basically looking like that? You know, that might not go ahead as well. No, I haven't heard any talk about that. Obviously, it's later. It's supposed to start in September, so much later in the year. But the the problem here is the trickle down effect with everything else getting postponed. You know, um, if the trials get pushed back, and then the Olympics get pushed back, and then all of a sudden, calendars are all over the place. So I can't see how this wouldn't affect the start of the ISL in the second season. So um, I, I think ultimately a lot of things are going to get shuffled around. Um, you can't shut down the whole world and then expect all of a sudden just to flick the light switch and the whole world just comes back on and just goes back to normal. There's, there's going to be a lot of trickle-down effect, like I said, and um, a lot of things are, are going to be affected. But right now... They're progressing as if it will start in September for the ISL. But, um, again, we'll see how that progresses over time. Now, mate, that's enough talk about corona for one day. Um, and we've got a lot to get through on your career in and out of the pool. Um, and like a lot of young swimmers out there listening today, your journey obviously didn't start you know, at the top. It started um, somewhere. Uh, what are your earliest memories of, of swimming as a youngster? Yeah, mate, uh, you know, my parents were were fortunate that we had a, a pool in the back backyard. It actually started off as an above-ground pool. Um, it was one of those plastic things that sat out of the ground, and, and we were very lucky. I had a, an older sister and a younger brother, and we just uh, grew up with, with a pool, you know, with some water in our backyard. So we were always out in the backyard playing around. And then that, that we spent so much time in that pool that it progressed to my parents wanting to get an, an in-ground pool. So we ended up uh, having one of those, and all the kids from the neighborhood would come around, and we would just be in the pool all day long. So I never really took any formal swim lessons until I was 11, um, which is a little bit later for most people. But I'd, I'd been swimming all my life. I'd been in the surf. Uh, you know, I grew up near Maroubra Beach and, and um, spent a lot of time in the ocean. Um, so the water was just part of who I was. And then I had asthma growing up as a kid and, uh, the doctors suggested that, look, I, I go into more of a full-time type situation with swimming just to strengthen my lungs. Um, at that stage I was playing rugby and, and doing all the normal things that kids would do. But, um, when I, when I did eventually start doing some swim training at age 11, 
man, I just fell in love with it and uh, it just felt like home to me and it felt like the right thing. It just, uh, I love going to training. I love going to, to, to learn. I loved um, the progression of, of what I was learning. Um, I loved the discipline too. I just, I fell in love with the discipline of the sport, like having to be somewhere on time and having to prepare and, you know, have a swimsuit and goggles. And, you know, I just, um, I, I love doing the laps. I love being with my, my teammates. And so I think just all of it, um, for some reason, just clicked for me, you know? Yeah, definitely. Mate, you're known for being super fast in freestyle and over short distances, but growing up, did you excel in any other strokes or events? Mate, I think growing up, um, you know, I had a really tough coach. His name was Terry Buck. He was actually the uh, manager of the 96 Olympic team for Australia. Uh, but but he was a, an old school coach and, and we just, you know, back then we did a lot of yards and, and I swam with a lot of surf swimmers, guys that were doing, um, you know, the cool and gutter goals and things like that. So we had a group of guys that were very tough and would work hard. And so sprinting really wasn't part of that uh, curriculum at the time, you know. So I wasn't I wasn't really known for sprinting, but I certainly didn't love doing the the miles that we were doing in the pool. It just didn't it didn't click. It didn't feel good with me. Um, and uh, and then uh, and then I got a new coach around the age of about uh, fifteen. Uh, Brian Sutton came over, and uh, and Brian kind of changed everything for me. He started to coach me like a sprinter, and it just uh, it started to feel much more like I fit in with yeah. with a sprint group. And um, so things just started to to really click around the age of sixteen when it, when it came to sprinting. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, I guess, and, and swimming has come so far now and the knowledge and everything that we know about training, um, how many sprinters were, were, I guess, for lack of a better word, buried back in the day and, and looked at as, you know, not as tough as the other guys because they, you know, couldn't keep up on a certain pace or whatever, but it was just, you guys are just different beasts, right? No, mate, listen, I can tell you a lot of stories. I actually was um, on the Australian team, and, and I was still looked at as... Um, I remember sitting in a meeting once, and the coaches were talking about how, how many gold medals they were going to win in in certain events. And, um, you know, they didn't even bring up the 50 freestyle as an event where we could even possibly win a gold medal. And, and it was it was almost like it wasn't even an event, yeah. you know? And I said, hang on, guys, like... We, we swim the 50 freestyle as well. You know, back then, it just like back in the late 90s, it just wasn't even uh, regarded as a, as a respectable event. So uh, even when I was on the Australian team at 21, you know, um, it still was like that. So it took a while for sprinters to really gain some um, respect. And, um, you know, because I think that the, the 50 freestyle came in in 1988, I think was the first Olympics. It was kind of a late event and, and people just didn't give it much. They didn't know much about it. They didn't know how to coach it. They didn't know who was built for it. Um, and it took people like Andrew Bailden and Darren Lang and Chris Feidler to really change the way we thought about the event and, and how we coached it. And then eventually I came along and, and pushed the boundaries a little more. So, yeah, it's taken us a while to get to where we are now. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a beautiful event. I love it. It's my passion. Mm. Um, and, and I'm, I've, I've dedicated my life to trying to understand it. 
Mate, you mentioned there about 15 is when you started to, I guess, find your groove. Is that around the time that swimming started to get a, a little bit more serious for you in terms of competitions? Yeah, I mean, I, just thinking back, I had um, I grew up with a guy named Scotty Miller. Do you remember Scotty Miller? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, so Scott Scott Miller was was my age, and um, he was kind of the superstar uh, around that time, and mm. and I just kind of idolized him. I wanted to be like him, and um, yeah, and so, and there was some other people around that time as well. Uh, but so I just kind of. Uh, I just wanted to get good at it. I wanted to get better at it. And, uh, and, and everybody around my age at that time were bigger and stronger and faster than me. And, and I hated that, you know, I, I, I wanted to be good at it and, uh, I didn't like being just average. And so I really pushed my parents to, um, to, to make me go to the practices to, or to get me to the practices that I needed to be at so that I could get better. And it, and it just took a long time. It didn't happen overnight. Um, but, you know, I tell people this all the time. There were a lot of people better than me at that age, but um, I just didn't quit. And, and I actually told that to my, to my high school. I went back um, after I made the Sydney Olympics, my high school, Waverley College in Sydney. They invited me back to, to, to give a talk, and a lot of the same teachers were still at the high school um, many years later after I'd made the Olympic team at the age of 25. And so I went back about, you know, uh, seven years after finishing high school and, and teachers were still there and they were like, how did you make the Olympic team? We <laughs> thought this guy would make it or that guy would make it. So yeah, I just told them I just didn't quit and just, uh, I just had that in me, that mongrel in me to want to keep going and, and want to be the best. And, and eventually it kind of started to figure it out, started to click, you know. Absolutely. Mate, one thing I like to do with all my guests is just take them back to their younger years in training and see if they had any bad habits because a lot of the kids that listen to this podcast at the moment would be having a few that coaches are trying to get out of them. So I'm just going to run through a list of bad habits and you let me know if, if any of these uh, were you. Um, generally speaking, when we go through this, there's only about one or two that uh, swimmers own up to. So generally speaking, the top swimmers tend to be pretty uh, disciplined, but we'll see how we go. Uh, mate, feet on the bottom of the pool during laps. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Mate, I'm a sprinter, so I had to put my feet down eventually. You know, it's generally <laughs> once a lap. So. Yeah, there's 2K time yeah. trials. Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> mate, go into the toilet mid-set to have a rest. Mate, not only did I go to the toilet, but I would um, just have a pit stop in the hot shower and I'd spend about 10 minutes in the hot shower as well, you know, because it was we trained outdoors. So my my thing was I'd disappear into the hot shower because I was freezing cold and the coach would, coaches would be like, where were you? I was like, oh, I just went to the bathroom real quick. But, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Wait, what about pulling on the lane rope in backstroke? Mate, absolutely. Yeah, that's, not, that's a, that's a given, you know. <laughs> Uh, oh, mate, I did it all. There's yes. no doubt about it. Oh, so we've got two to go. You, you might get the full clean sweep here. Um, being last to get in the pool. Um, only when it was cold. I hated to get in when it was cold, for sure. But, but generally, I would, um, I would always try and be one of the first to get in, actually, yeah. And, mate, long before we had fancy heart rate equipment and you said your finger and your pulse, um, did you ever lie about your heart rate? 
Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't until the coach would bend over and, and put his finger in my <laughs> on my neck, you know, and then and take the pulse himself and realize, mate, you're not working very hard at all, you know. So, but, uh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, there was definitely a bit of that going on. Man, I'm taking your mind back here, but do you remember your first state championships? Um. I don't remember my first state championships. I remember my first national championship. I actually finished last in the 100 freestyle. I was 13 years old. It was the first time I could go to nationals. And um, I finished last in the 100 freestyle. I went 101-0. I remember the time exactly because I went 101-0-0. And I was was dead last. But just because I had made the nationals, I thought... I'd achieved something great, um, and I actually had a pretty decent relay team, and and our relay ended up getting a bronze medal. And I've got a photo of me on the dais, and uh, one of the boys that was on the gold medal winning relay team was Daniel Kowalski. So uh, Daniel, at the age of thirteen, was a national champion, and I was I was the bronze medalist. So we we have a as well. Very good, mate. What about? Um so often athletes around their teenage years contemplate giving up swimming and whether that's because they've got other sports or studies or they start chasing girls and partying. Um, was that anything that sort of went through your mind as a teenager? Um, not really, but funny story. I went down, I was, I was selected at the age of 17 to go down to the Australian Institute of Sport to train with this new Olympic champion that had come down to the Institute to live. And his name was Alex Popoff. Mm -hmm. And Alex had just won the Olympics in 1992. And, um, Australia, uh, Sydney had been awarded the Olympics in 1993. And so they gathered all the top young sprinters together and they said, let's go down and do a a camp at the Australian Institute of Sport with, with Alex Popoff and, and his coach, Gennady Turetsky. So I went down there and, um, swam for about three days and Gennady didn't say a word to me and I thought this is this is strange and uh, on day three he pulled me out of the water and he said listen I can't watch this anymore he's like you need to quit swimming he's like you got a great body for surfing you've got great strong muscles in your back you need to go and surf He's like, go and do that. That's the sport that you need to do. And for a moment there, and he kicked me out of the camp and sent me home. Mm, and, uh, really? For, for a few weeks, I actually thought he might be right. I yeah. thought he, I thought maybe he's right. Maybe I'm not built for this. and Maybe I, I would be a better surfer because I could surf at the time. And mm. um, So I was kind of 50-50 on whether I should try and a pro career in surfing or should I try and stick to the swimming thing after I'd just been kicked out of a camp. And... Um, and I realized that no swimming was my passion, so I, I just said, you know what, forget him. I'm gonna I'm gonna do it my way and, and figure it out the best I can, you know. Mate, take me back to that moment though when he pulls you out. That's pretty confronting. What was your what were your initial thoughts though? Um mate, I held a grudge for many years. I hated that man for a long time. Yeah. And he was actually uh I think he was actually on the Sydney Olympic team as a, as an Australian coach uh, on my first Olympic team. I didn't talk to him the whole time, um, so I held a grudge for many years. But I think it was it was fuel that fed me, yeah. and um, and it helped, you know. But yeah, it was really embarrassing. It was really humiliating. Um, but 
in a way, I, I kind of needed it. You know, uh, I needed that. I needed that tough love because it fueled me big time to make me want to go back and and prove him wrong, and and um, not only just prove him wrong, but prove to myself that maybe you know I could do this. I don't know. I, I had to figure it out, and so it it forced me to really question things. And uh, like I said, I held a grudge for many years, and um, to this day, I haven't I haven't spoken to him again. But um, but I'm not. I don't hold on to the uh, the pain of that moment any longer. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You let it go. Good to hear, um, mate. You made the Australian team for the World Short Course uh, in 1995. How was that experience? Is this your first sort of Australian team? Your senior team? Yeah, it was my first team, and uh, and and I made the team with with the. My buddy, my idol that I grew up with, uh, Scotty Miller. We went to that that meet together, and um, it was my first time on on a on a team at all. But I was on the team with Susie O'Neill, um, you know, Chris Feidler, and uh, you know, just some of the superstars of, yep. of Australian swimming. And and all of a sudden, I'm on this team, and I was I just felt really out of place, but I, I felt really um, blessed to be there. Like. I felt like it was the one and only time I was ever going to make it, so I had to make the most of it. You know, like I had to soak it all in. I had to, I had to try and perform, but I had to really enjoy it as well. And so I thought that was it. And uh, and it was just an amazing meet to go to in Rio. It was on the beach. They built a pool on the beach. Um, it had hasn't happened again since then, but uh, it, it was an incredible meet. And I ended up finishing fourth in the 50 freestyler and um a couple of months later the guy that beat me he was a chinese swimmer he actually got test he tested positive uh he, he won the bronze medal yeah and uh so i finished fourth but they never actually ended up awarding me the bronze they just took the they took the medal away from him i yeah, think yeah. or they just took the result away from him at the time so but yeah that was one, my first experience on a on a team with a bunch of superstars and i felt really out of place Mate, ultimately, not long after this, you, you get a scholarship to go to Auburn University over in the US in 1996. Mate, talk to me about how that came about. Was that something that you'd been looking at, uh, the opportunity to go over there, and what sort of led you that way? Yeah, well, that's kind of the thing. Like I said, um, I made my, my team in 95, the Australian team. I didn't make another Australian team for five years until mm. the Sydney Olympics in 2000. So I actually went to the Olympic trials in uh 96 and i swam the 100 freestyle and i finished six so the qualification standard said they would they that they could possibly take the top 600 freestyles if you finished in the top six and i finished six of the trials so um don talbot at the time came up to me and said look if uh you finish set first or second in the 50 freestyle we'll definitely take you you know you're young and you're talented and 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 there's potential there to help you grow to get to the next, you know, the Sydney Olympics where we ultimately want you at your best. Um, and I ended up finishing third in the 50 freestyle and uh, by three one hundredths of a second. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, I, I still finished six, so I made the qualification and, and uh, they only decided to take the top 500 freestyles. They left me off the team. So uh, I was devastated. Uh, again, I think it was a turning point where I felt like, should I, should I keep doing this or not? And uh, and then the scholarship came up at, at in America. I just decided, you know, I needed a change. I needed something different. I, I needed to get away. And uh, 
took the scholarship up at Auburn. I'd never, uh, I'd never talked to any other schools. I didn't know anything about the school itself, really. I'd talked to a couple of swimmers that swam there. And, um, and I just kind of fell into a, an incredible experience. I just got very, very lucky with that experience. You mentioned there how lucky you were. Talk to me about some of the differences you noticed in you know, training styles, coaching philosophies, and when you first got over there. Yeah, well, mate, I, uh, I, I signed on to be coached by David Marsh, who is uh, in the next few months going to be inducted into the Swimming Hall of Fame as, as a coach. He's, he's uh, one of the greatest coaches, living coaches in American history, and I just happened to um, fall into that program, and he was my coach. And so, uh, again, I just got super lucky. And so, and at the time, he was revolutionizing the way that we thought about sprinting and the way that we coached sprinting. And so I fell into a program that was at the cutting edge and the forefront of innovation on how to sprint. And so for me, it was just like a, a learning a hotbed. You know, I was around other sprinters, my own age and abilities. And I, I actually was kind of like the fourth or fifth best sprinter on the team. And, and I was just getting my butt kicked every day by guys that were a little bit older, a little bit stronger, a little bit bigger, a little bit smarter, had more experience. And, um, and so it was just one of those experiences where I was just soaking it all in for a couple of years and, and learning so much about how to be a great sprinter, but also how to be a great team member, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, swimming in America is all about the team. And so I learned how to be a great team member and how I could, get the most out of my teammates to to help better my performance which then in turn would better their performance so um yeah it was just an incredible experience that i would uh i would not trade in for the world you know yeah mate 1999 am i right did you come back to australia i did yeah i came back to australia um it was a year out of the olympics I'd only been in college for two and a half years, but I felt at that time, if I don't come back, uh, I'd actually tried to come back a couple of times to make the Australian team, and mm. and it was uh, it was such a long flight and the jet lag and the lack of preparation that the that we were putting on trying to be prepared for that particular meet itself. I just felt was a, a huge disadvantage for me, so I felt like the only way that I could really have a shot at making the Olympic team was to come back a year early and uh, start training and preparing myself for the Olympic trials. And, and I put myself in a situation in 1999 where I came back to my old coach, Brian Sutton, uh, who, who knew me, who'd coached me for a number of years before I went to America. And he was coaching Chris Feidler at the time, who was the number one sprinter in, in the country. He hadn't been beaten in a, a 50 or 100 freestyle, I think in about eight or nine years. Um, so he was uh, Mr. Unbeatable. And so I just decided to go back and start training with him like I did in America. I put myself around the best. And um, and, and and that's the decision I made. Well, again, as you said, it's super fortunate for you, but also, I guess, smart decision-making for you that you put yourself in a position to, to train with the best, to push yourself to, to ultimately try and be the best, eh? Yeah, and and Chris was really good. Chris is uh, super smart. He's um, and, and Chris ended up being on that on that 
relay team that ended up beating the Americans, you know, and um, the really famous yep. winning relay, four-by-one relay team. And, and so Chris had a great Olympics, but um, but in the lead-up to that, like I said, Chris hadn't been beaten in eight years. So uh, I, I knew at the last Olympic trials in 96, the only way to get on the team to guarantee yourself is you've got to win the event at the trials. So I went in with the mentality of, like, I'm not – swimming for second place i'm i'm swimming to win this event it's the only way that i can guarantee myself a spot on the olympic team but i knew in order to do that i had to beat chris who hadn't been beaten in eight years so how do you how do you even do that um i wasn't faster than him i wasn't better than him i i wasn't as good as him but i had to somehow figure out how to beat him in order to get on that olympic team and so that was my mission over the over the over the 12 months, was to figure out a way to beat Chris. Now you mentioned the Olympics there in Sydney, and you, you do go on to make the team. Uh, that Those Olympics were massive in our country, and they're still talked about glowingly you know, to this day, and that's 20 years on. Um, you were there. You were a part of the Australian team, and we'll get into the racing part of it in a second. But just tell me about your experience of having you know, the Olympics, not just in your country, but in your state as well. Yeah, it was really surreal, mate. Um, I grew up about twenty minute drive from the Olympic Stadium, you know, not too far away. And so the 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 pressure of making the Olympic team was huge. You know, obviously it's it's my home Olympics. It's my my home pool. I've got to I've got to I've got to make this team. You know, at all costs. And so I ended up winning the Olympic trials breaking the Australian record in the final of the of the trial event and beating Chris Feidler and, and, and making the team. And so I felt like that was a huge hurdle. Um, one of the classic mistakes that I made was I prepared myself to make the team. I didn't prepare myself to swim at the Olympic Games. Mm. And, um, and, and that was a lesson that I had to learn the hard way. But, um, I mean, we can go into some of the mistakes I made. But, but ultimately, being part of that, Olympic team was all encompassing, you know, every, once you made that team, everybody wanted a piece of you. Everybody, you know, wanted you to make an appearance here or be in this magazine or talk on this mm. show or, or, you know, whatever it was, it was, you're on the Olympic team, you're a star. Let's, uh, let's make the most of this. And so it, it, it kind of, the whole event, it just got caught, we got caught up. I got caught up in the event, let's mm. put it that way, because um, many of my teammates still performed very well. Um, but it was it was more than just a swim meet at that stage. It was my home Olympics, and I had all my friends and family in the stadium, and, and in the lead-up to that, people just constantly stopping me in the streets, telling me that I'm going to win the gold medal, and that they're all expecting this and that, and the pressure and everything just built up. And uh, so it was, it was a massive event. Yeah. And those were the days before social media and Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all that stuff. Right. So I could imagine, you know, if, yeah. if it was the Olympics now in Sydney, that would just be, you know, 10 times. Yeah. Well, it's true. I mean, um, you know, most of the, most of the way that we interacted with the public was in the newspaper. So, um, Don Talbot actually about two weeks out of the Olympics, he actually stopped um, having the newspaper delivered to our hotel room down in Melbourne. We were doing a camp in Melbourne, and he banned the newspaper from being delivered to our rooms. 
So we, we that's the way we kind of cut ourselves off from social media at the time, you know. <laughs> Um, so we, we, we were put in, a, a, in isolation um, <laughs> for the Sydney Olympics, and, uh, and so that, that's how we did it. But, yeah, the pressure's enormous, mate. You know, it's, uh, I can't imagine what, it, what it's like going through it these days and the pressure that those, those athletes are put under these days, you know. Mate, let's go into the 50 in Sydney. So you qualified into the semis, uh, I think you came seventh in the heats. Um, and unfortunately didn't make the final. I think you finished just outside the top eight. Um, how was that to take for you? Obviously, you're talking about how everyone was you know, pumping up your tyres and you know, pumping up everyone's tyres in the Australian team. And so there would have been a, a sense of expectations you put on yourself. 22-07, you'd gone in the trial. So, I mean, how was that to, to cop? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to learn. Like I said, I took a lot away from that event. Um you know, I, I swam on day six, and so I had to I had to go through the relay on the first night. I had to go through Thorpe's events. I had to go through Susie O'Neill's events. Just standing there watching, you know, for days on end, um, and cheering and jumping and screaming and all the emotions that go with all those swims uh, that the Australian team had in the lead up to my race on day six. And so, by actually, by the time I got to my race, I felt pretty exhausted. I was mm-hmm. I was emotionally exhausted just uh from every day there's seventeen thousand people in the stands screaming and uh you know so it was very uh, intense um so by the time i got to my race I, I felt a little fatigued and uh and i wasn't fully mentally or physically ready to perform at my best um and so i ended up swimming i actually swam in the pre in the in the um, the morning swim um, next to Alexander Popoff and Peter Vanden Hugenbahn. And Peter had just uh, broken the world record in the 100 freestyle and, and won the gold medal. And I was actually positioned next to them in the morning. And then I made the semifinal and it was we were positioned exactly the same way again. Popoff was in lane four, Peter was in lane five, and I was in lane six. So both the morning swim and the semifinal. And... Um, and I just felt enormous pressure because I was next to two of the greatest sprinters of all time as well. And so I just didn't handle that well either. So mm. there were just little things where I look back, I'm like, wow, I, I just didn't, I didn't give my best there. And so I had certain, I certainly had regrets in terms of my performance at the Sydney Olympics. Um, finished 13th in the 50 freestyle, but felt like I, I really missed an opportunity to be at my best, you know? I guess that's the hard part with the 52. I had a quick look uh, last night when I was doing my research, and I think 8th was uh, 22.3, 8 or something like that, and you were 22.4, 7, 4, 9, something yeah. around that. So, I mean, it's, yeah. I mean, it, I, yeah. you know, obviously the disappointment for yourself, but still for us guys sitting in the stands and sitting on the couch watching, it's like, like a, you know, a fingernail away. Um, that must be super tough to take. Yeah, when you miss the final by a tenth of a second and you and you see all these areas where you could have been better, you realize that, you know, you really let an opportunity go. And so I really, um, I don't know if depression is the right word, but I went into a very low period after the games where I, I just felt like I'd missed something huge in my life. Uh, even though I, I was at an event that I'd been working for for many years, um, I still feel like I, l- I let a lot of people down, in, including myself. And so I had this low period where um, 
I knew I had to get on with my life and move on, but I felt like uh, there was more to give, mm. and I just didn't know how to do that. At that time, you know, I didn't have any sponsors, and I wasn't getting any funding and things like that, so I, I thought that was the end of the line for me. And I was actually um, at an event out celebrating with some friends and came home back to the village, and I, I actually got a phone call. I had a cell phone at the time, and I got a phone call from um, somebody that was watching it, the event who was my my, my sister's workmate, and uh, he said, hey, uh, I was really inspired by your story. You don't know me, but I want to sponsor you for the next four years, and I, I just thought he was joking, you know, yeah. um, and, and so I kind of hung up on him, and then a couple of days later, he called back again and said, no, I'm a, I'm a business owner, and um, I've got some, some cash that I want to invest in someone and, and you're the guy that I want to do it. So I want to, I want to help fund you for the next four years to get to the next Olympics. And I just thought, wow, what a miracle, you know? Mm. So, um, the, the disappointment that I, that I felt, I, 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 all of a sudden I felt like I could do something about it. Um, and so it was kind of like, uh, my little ray of sunshine, you know, just getting in there and being able to continue what I love, you know? Well, thank God they did because as I, I said in the opener, you know, so many accomplishments over your swimming career and we went through, you know, 2002, 2004 on to Melbourne, 2006. Um, I, I, we could sit here probably all night, all night for you, all day, all day for me, um, going through each one. So what I'll do is I'm going to rattle off uh, four different uh, competitions and years and I just want you to tell me, you know, maybe a little story or just something that sticks out most for you from that meet. So we'll we'll start with mm. 2002 Commonwealth Games uh, in Manchester. Uh, it was it was a, a time where I felt like I was really hitting my stride. Like I had good experience. Um, I was racing against some of the the top athletes in the world in uh, Roland Schumann and. Um, and, and a couple of others, and I just felt like I was I was ready to perform really well. And so I went I went to that meet, and I ended up uh, winning the silver medal. I missed the gold by a hundredth of a second, um, but it was one of those events where I felt like I really kind of put sprinting on the map because we hadn't we hadn't really been successful in the fifty freestyle in Australia's history before. And to win the silver medal at the Com Games was was a big deal. So I, I felt like finally. I was giving uh, the sport, uh, giving the event its its due credit by by winning that medal and performing the way I did, and um, felt very proud of that one. Hey, what about uh, Pan Packs in Yokohama? Um, well, I, I'm not sure. I, I just remember I remember Grant Hackett. Uh, you know, Grant and I were very good friends, and um, we went to the Pan Pack. It was it was a couple of it was about a week after we got back from um, Manchester. Yeah, so we the Australian team and yeah. So we went out to Manchester. We'd been away preparing for the Commonwealth Games for about four weeks, and so then we came back. We had a week in in Australia, and then we had to fly out to Japan for the Pan Pack. So no one really was loving the fact that we had to go to the Pan Packs, but we knew we had to go race the Americans. Mm. Um, and Grant had done this huge program at the uh, at the Com Games, and then he, he had to do another huge program at the Pan Pacific. And I remember he got to the last day, and the 1500 freestyle was the last 
last event, and um, there was two really gun American athletes that I, I kind of knew from my time in America. Uh, it was Cleek Keller and um, Eric Vent, and um, and they were gunning for Grant. And Grant hadn't hadn't lost a 1500 in many years. Mm. And um, I came over on the bus. I was a little bit late. And I uh, got to the pool, and Grant was laying on the massage table, and he was asleep. And it was about an hour before the 1500 freestyle. And uh, I said to one of the massage therapists, is he okay? He's like, oh, he's exhausted, mate. He's, he's done. And uh, so I went up to him. I said, mate, how you, how you doing? And he was like, oh, I'm so tired. I don't, I don't want to swim this event. And uh, I just remember saying to him, oh, that's a shame, mate, because I was just on the bus with the Americans, and and they were saying some things, and uh, he was like, what, what were they saying? I said, well, Dad, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal, you know. He's like, no, no, tell me. What were they saying? I said, well, I was sitting next to Eric and, and Cleet, and they were strategizing about how they were going to work together to kick your ass tonight, mate, and, uh, and, and finally slay the drag and take you down, you know. And I just remember Grant got up off the massage table, he grabbed his goggles, and he 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 was steaming. He had steam coming out of his ears, and he put his goggles on, and he jumped in the pool, and he started swimming. And uh, and right before the race, uh, Dennis Cottrell, his coach, came up to me, and he's like, mate, what did you say to him about an hour ago? I just said, oh, I told him the Americans were going to kick his ass. I said, uh, I, mate, I just made it up. They, they didn't say that at all. But uh, <laughs> and so... So Grant jumps in the pool and uh, and he swims this race and he almost breaks the world record. I remember this and and I remember he touches the wall and he looks back and he's be- he's beating these guys by a, a, pool, a fifty meters by a whole length of the pool. I remember he just looked back and he started swearing at them on national television <laughs> and uh, I, I can't repeat what he said, but he was so angry and then he got out of the pool and. And he was like, like mate, uh, I showed those guys. And I was like, yeah, well, uh, you know, I kind of made that story up, Grant. And he was, <laughs> he was so mad at me. That's the only thing I remember from the pancakes is just uh, pissing, pissing Grant Hackett off and, and making him swim one of the greatest performances of his life. So that was uh, that was the time where I realized that sports psychology could play a big part in performance, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, is this a little window into your future? Is this the start of your coaching career do you think you're starting to look at ways to motivate people yeah i really do think that like i I found ways to connect with athletes you know and some of my best friends were with some of the top athletes in the world and i always always felt like i had some influence on them you know michael clem uh you know we're best buddies to this day and uh i felt like there were many times where i I helped him out and uh so i just you know there were there were moments on the Australian team where I had very um, intimate moments like that with some of the greatest athletes in our history. And, um, and they've definitely helped me go into the coaching realm as well. Um, I'll t- I can tell you a great story about Ian Thorpe as well, if you like. Go for it. Mate, we're at the, uh, uh, at the Athens Olympics in 2004 and, um, Thorpe lost the 200 freestyle in Sydney and, uh, and, and he's racing in the final against all the best swimmers in, in the history of, of the sport. You've got um, Michael Phelps is in the final. You've got Grant Hackett's in the final. You've got Peter Van den Hoogenbarns in there. Um, you know, and so he's trying to get his revenge on Peter. And uh, right before the race, he, he, sit, he, he asked a couple of us to come and sit with him. Um, 
right before he went to the ready room to, to perform. It was about 15 minutes before. And we just sat in kind of a circle. It was myself and Grant Hackett and Ian, uh, Ian was there and, and obviously, and then, um, Michael Clem and, and a couple of other people. And, and he just went around the circle and he, and he asked us, he's like, um, give me an animal that you, that when you think of it, it projects a certain what you feel a certain way you feel, you feel strong, like give me an animal. Mm. And, um, so we just went around the circle and, and, you know, someone said a tiger and someone said, you know, uh, uh, a bear and someone said something else. And so we just went around and we were talking about these animals and he was at the time he was visualizing, he was taking in the animals as we were saying them. And he was, he was creating these vivid images in his mind about how powerful these animals were. And I just remember that as a very, um, interesting way to, prepare yourself mentally to go out and and perform at the olympics and he went out and if you if you watch that 200 freestyle he swam that with so much confidence and so much power and um so much belief in himself and that last 50 he just blew the field away mm -hmm. it wasn't even a race in the last 50 and um and and that moment really stuck with me the way that he prepared his mind to go out to battle to uh to take on the best in the world that's something that stuck with me for many years and so different to everyone else right like everyone has their own ways of you know pumping themselves up or some people need to sort of calm down and be more relaxed so that i guess would have been really good for you to see like a completely different way of of going about you know getting that arousal level uh, levels right yeah yeah exactly and that's the that's the thing when you're in that position you don't know the best way to to act, you know, and so I think that was where Thorpey was really good. He really understood himself, and uh, he could get himself in the in the place where he could perform at his best and push out all the pressures. Because there was no athlete that I knew that was under more pressure than Ian Thorpe at the time. You know, um, everybody was talking about him and expecting him to do things all the time, and so to be able to sit there 15 minutes before your race and just be thinking of animals and the way that they project strength into your body um, was uh, a pretty incredible moment for me, you know? Mm, absolutely. Mate, what about the 2006 Commonwealth Games in Melbourne? Yeah, that was, uh, that was my last event uh, for Australia. That was my last swim meet. I decided before that that, that was going to be it. I wasn't. I wasn't going to swim beyond that. I was 31 at the time, and to be quite honest, I, I didn't have any injuries, and um, I had made the decision to swim to 2004 Olympics. And then after that, I felt like, yeah, there's still more in me. But by the time I got to 2006, I thought, uh, you know, I was. We were traveling the world with some of the girls that were making the team were 15, 16 years old, you know. And at that time, I had two kids and. And we were under, you know, all these different restrictions where when you're on the Australian team, you're on lockdown and you can't do this and you can't do that. And I just thought, well, I'm getting treated like a 16-year-old girl here and I'm a 31-year-old man with two kids. And it just didn't, it, it just, it, it didn't do it for me anymore, you know. So at that stage, I thought, well, this is it. I'll go to my last Commonwealth Games. It'll be my third one and, and I'll hang it up. So I just remember really enjoying um, being part of that team and taking it all in and, um, I actually made the relay team for the first time, and um, 
Uh, I'd never been on the Australian relay team before in my in my seven years on the Australian on, on the Australian team. It was my first time on the four by one freestyle, and I was on there with my best mate Michael Clem. And I remember taking a uh, shower um, a couple of hours before we had to go to to the pool, and uh, I was just kind of preparing myself. So I just I got out of bed. I, I just had a nap and waking my body up and I had a shower and I, and I just used somebody's shampoo. I don't know whose it was, but um, I had an allergic reaction in oh, the shower. Yeah. And I got, I got out and um, my whole body was covered in a rash, like a, a real red hot rash. And I, and I was like, Michael, I'm, I'm in trouble. I don't know what's going on here. And he's like, we're going to take you to the clinic. And so they, there was a med clinic in the village. They took me down there and, um, and, they, and they just said, well, the only way that we're going to get rid of this quickly as if we give you an adrenaline shot so they gave me adrenaline and that didn't work and they had to give me another adrenaline mm -hmm. shot so i had two adrenaline shots and uh they and they said mate we, you you won't be able to swim tonight i said listen i've waited my whole life for this moment to be on this uh, uh relay team yeah. with these boys nothing's going to stop me i'm i'm going to the pool and they said well look at the very least you got to sit here and wait until the medicine kicks in and we're going to monitor you and see what happens. And they said, you know, you got an, about an hour before you swim. You've got adrenaline in you. Uh, we're not going to let you warm up. So you've actually got to put your suit on. And if you're going to do this race, you, uh, you're going to get cleared for it, but you, uh, you've got to get straight up on the block and swim without any warm up because your heart rate is so high. My heart rate was at about 200. So, uh, wow. So they, they let me they let me swim it. I actually swam my first uh, my first relay race for Australia without any warm up and um, and uh, that was, wow what an incredible experience that was man I've, I've never I've never felt anything like that before but um, yeah that's something that was just uh, burned in my memory as well that I swam well, I my first relay race for Australia. With the bloody shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the bloody shampoo. Someone spiked my shampoo. Well, in the what was the what was it? What was the brand? What was it? Pantene? Garnier? Fructose? I don't know what happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was something with some flowers in it. I don't know what happened, but my body just broke out in a rash. It was pretty. It was really bad. I nice. haven't had any experience like that since, so it was, it was strange. So, but yeah, they wouldn't let me warm up. I just jumped up on the blocks, and, and we ended up winning the silver medal. And um, so that was that was a lot of fun. Mate, you finished your career, as I said at the top of the show, with seven international medals. How proud of you? Uh, how proud are you, sorry, of those? Mate, I don't even remember the medals, to be quite honest. I just remember the relationships and the time that I spent with people. You know, you had Gian Rooney on your show, and Gian and I were teammates for many years, and we traveled the world together. And so um, they're the things that I remember. I don't remember the medals at all. Um, I don't even have my medals hanging up or anything. I don't even know where they are. So, um, so for me, it was just the experiences and, um, and the, the friends that I've, I've made and, uh, the ability to represent my country for seven years, you know, at the highest level, uh, for someone that, you know, was kicked out of, um, of, of swimming, you know, with the Olympic champion at the age of 17 and told to, to quit the sport to somebody that ended up representing their country for seven years. So, you know, I was, that's what I'm proud of the most and they're the things I remember the most. Mate, not long after retirement, you returned to uh, Auburn University and you start as assistant coach with David Marsh. Mate, we talked about earlier just, you know, you starting to, I guess, 
get a taste for coaching and motivating people. But, you know, what drew you, do you think, the most to, to coaching and wanting to be involved? Um, I don't know. I, I wasn't, I didn't actually go back to coach. I actually went back to finish my degree because, uh, I felt like I had, um, not closed the chapter on something and I don't like that in, in my life. I like to finish things. And, uh, so in, in order to go back to Sydney to, to swim at the Olympics in 2000, I had to give up my, my degree. And so I still had two years left on my degree and I felt like I needed to finish it. So I actually just went back to Auburn to, to finish up that. And then, then I was going to go and get a real job, you know? And, um, one of the coaches ended up, it was in psychology, uh, actually, you know, I'm, I love psychology. So, um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I just knew that I had to finish it and that was my interest. And so I got over there and, and immediately one of the coaches got diagnosed with cancer. And, um, so David said to me, look, I, I'm going to open up the position and look for somebody, but while I'm looking for someone, can you just, you, can you just take a few people and help me out? You know, I'm, I'm a coach down. So I said, yeah, okay, no worries. So after school, each day I'd come and, and help him coach. And so for the summer, he just said, look, I take these 10 guys. I really, they're, they're kind of a pain in the butt. I don't like working with them. Um, you just take them and, and do something with them for the next couple of months. And, and um, so he kind of gave me free reign with, with 10 guys. And, uh, and, uh, and I said, look, can I do whatever I want? He's like, do whatever you want. I don't care. Just just coach them, do whatever. So we just had fun, and I just coached them the way that I would want to be coached. And all 10 of them swam best times. And uh, at the end of the summer, he's like, I don't know what you did, but uh, I'd like you to stay on and be, be the full-time assistant. And I was like, all right, well, that was a lot of fun, so why not? So so that's how it eventuated. It just I just kind of fell into coaching and, and uh, just happened to have a talent for it, I guess. Now you talk about there some of the things that you were natural at in coaching. Were there any things that you, I guess, needed to work on a little bit more? Mate, I did not know how to work a stopwatch at all, and I'm still not very good at it. <laughs> but I was so nervous. Yeah. Um, I couldn't. I couldn't read a stopwatch. I couldn't figure out how to give people their time. You know, when you're a swimmer and you're coming into the wall, you're looking at your own time. But when you're a coach, you're looking at 20 different people at the same time and each one of them want their time and they want it delivered hand delivered to them, you know, and yeah. you better be accurate. So they, so, um, so I had to learn on the job real quick about the, the, the finer points of coaching. Um, and then I, I'd never written a workout before. So I had to write, I had to learn how to structure a workout to, to last two hours because, uh, otherwise my workouts were just going to go for about 10 minutes, you know? So, um, yeah. <laughs> So I had to figure those things out, you know, and then and then I started to get an appreciation for coaches. You know, I I used to think coaching um, I didn't give it as much respect as uh, as it deserves, and um, uh, you know, I just didn't I didn't think it was that difficult. But it's actually a very difficult job, and there's a lot to go into it, and um, and it's and it's hard to be good at it. Honestly, you, not everybody can be good at it. It's like any other job. There's there's certain people that are better at it, but. Uh, I just did, uh, I did have a natural affinity and talent for it, I guess, and um, I learned pretty quickly. And I also developed, one of the things that David um, told me from the get-go was like, develop your own style, you know, do things the way you want to do things. Don't do things the way that everybody else does them. And so he really encouraged me to uh, be unique and think for myself and think outside the box. And um, 
and he challenged me that way. So that's that's how I felt like I really was able to to be the type of coach that I that I wanted to be rather than somebody else, you know. Hey, 2009's a pretty big year for you. You named head coach of uh, the Auburn team. You're also named one of the uh, CSCAA coaches of the year with your boys team winning the national title. And to top it all off, you become a US citizen. So it's a, a pretty big year for you, 2009. Well, actually, 2008 was bigger. Um, yeah, 2009 was huge, you're right. But yeah. 2008, so, so part of that training group of the 10 that David didn't want to deal with was a young kid by the name of Cesar Ciela. Um, Caesar was in the in the 200 freestyle group, and David said, "Look, I'm just having a lot of trouble with this kid. Can you take him and figure him out and see if you can keep him from going back to Brazil because he's crying every day?" <laughs> and uh, so I took this young kid on board, and uh, and we clicked, and we just hit it off. And um, so I started coaching him in the summer of 2006, and uh, in the summer of 2008. He ended up winning the gold medal in the in the Olympics in the fifty freestyle, and so two years into my coaching career, I'd, I'd coached a guy to win Olympic gold medal, and uh, so it was it, it was like, oh, wow, what do I do now? You know, how do I top that? So, um, so two thousand eight was a huge year. Uh, it was the first Olympic gold medal in Brazil's swimming history. You know, so it was a huge, huge event. I, I'd. Uh, I coach Olympic champions. So, but in 2009, yes, yeah, Caesar went on to break the world records in the 50 free and the 100 free, and many great things happened in 2009. And then I was named head coach of the Auburn program. Um, and then, yeah, and then I became a U.S. citizen and, and fully embraced my my time here in America. You know. You know, you mentioned there with Caesar getting the gold at the Olympics and the medal, and we talked about before how the medals weren't. Um, you know, as important to you as as the moments were. Was it the same with this? Was it was it the moment? Was it going through the you know the two years that you talked about to get to that 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 part? No, no, no. Being Olympic champion is the best thing ever. <laughs> you know, um, no, that's one of those medals that I'd, I'd wear around my neck every day if I had it. You know, but um. Uh, no, that's different, you know, like yeah. winning Olympic gold, you feel, you feel it's just a different accomplishment, you know, and I, and I can, I can understand people now, um, who have won gold medals and, and then coaches who have helped coach them and, um, they're not easy to come by, mate. And, uh, when you do get them, you realize that it's, it's very special. So, but yeah, that was a, that was a huge event for us, um, but I had uh, I had a very very talented athlete under my under my um, guidance. You know, uh, I just was at the right place at the right time again in terms of that. And Caesar is one of the greatest sprinters in history. In like, he still holds the world records in the fifty and the hundred freestyles from two thousand nine. So um, I was very lucky to be part of his um, rise and his growth. And um, it taught me a lot about sprinting and really made me the coach that I am today, you know. What ways do you think you clicked with Caesar that David might not have? Um, I think uh, David uh, was coaching him as an athlete where I coached him as a person. You know, I, I really got to know him personally. You know, I, I, um, I hung out with him. I went to... You know, I'd eat dinner with him, I'd travel with him, I'd uh, just kind of, 
I got to know his girlfriend. You know, I wasn't I wasn't that much older than him. I was like thirty two years old at the time. Um, you know, and he's he's twenty twenty one. But you know, we just uh, I just understood him. I understood where he was in his process because I just I wasn't that far removed from just being a professional athlete myself. So I understood exactly where he wanted to go i understood how he had to get there because i was i was at the top of the game myself just uh, a year a year earlier so um so i think he he gave me the respect that uh, i needed and i gave him the respect that he needed but we um we just got to become good friends too and so i think that helped uh the process of his of his growth you know um while we were friends, he still had respect for me, and and so when I told him to do things, he did them, you know, and um and so I appreciated that, and that's the only way that he was going to get to where he needed to go is if he listened to what I said he needed to do, and um you know, and then at the same time I listened to him too, so it was just a mutual respect and understanding that we had with each other, you know. Yeah, how is Brett Hawk the coach different from Brett Hawk the swimmer? Oh, uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, Brett Hawk, the swimmer, had a lot of doubts and a lot of fears, and um, I, I would say a lot of self-doubt, you know. But uh, Brett Hawk, the coach, has very little um, self-doubt and is very confident and uh, projects confidence. And um, I've always... I always wanted... Uh, I wanted to look into my coach's eyes when I was a swimmer and see their belief in me mm. and um and i didn't get that a lot you know i was never the tallest athlete i was never the biggest and strongest and fastest and you know when i got to the when i got to the olympic games i was racing some of the greatest athletes in history you know gary holt jr and alexander popoff and you know these athletes when you look at them they look like specimens you know and i'm just i just look like an average average guy and and i just Maybe I just never gave myself enough credit for how good I was. I just never believed that I was as good as them, maybe. Um, and so I always wanted pro to project that in my athletes. I wanted them to know that I believed in them 100%. And um, and I believed that they could do whatever they wanted to do. And so I try and give my athletes that belief. And, and that comes from a confidence in... Um, in myself as a coach so i have to have that confidence and then i have to project it into them as athletes and so uh that's what i i do i i um, give them belief and um and i believe it myself and so because i do i believe mm. that you really can do anything you want to do um you just have to have belief in it you know Mate, you, you wrap up your tenure there with Auburn in 2018 uh, and you join the Fitter and Faster team as the development director of clinics and camps. Now, for all of us in Australia and anyone else listening who might not know about Fitter and Faster, give us a brief rundown about the company and, and eventually what drew you to it. Um, the, the owner of the company is David Arlock and he was uh, he started the Race Club, which is a very famous uh, club in in America. He he was one of the founders of that, and he was he was actually Gary Hall Jr.'s manager at the time that I was racing, and so we got to know each other. and And he started this company called Fitter and Faster, and we do uh, it, it does clinics all around the country. So we go into any pool, into any situation, and kids can sign up for a swim clinic, and we go in for two days. 
and we basically teach them everything we know about a particular stroke or a, a particular skill. So it might be starts and turns, it might be breaststroke on one day and butterfly the next day. And we really go in and we kind of break down the skills that, that we think they need. And then we also give them the, you know, the life advice that we feel like they need in order to progress in swimming because swimming is a challenging sport. So we try to impart our experiences on them and give them some knowledge, but also give them confidence. And we tell them um, some of our struggles uh, that we had when we were their age. So um, we're really just trying to start at the grassroots level of swimming and build it into a sport where people will stick with it uh, throughout their their high school periods or, you know, into college and things like that because I feel like the attrition rate in swimming is very high at one point. And so we need to try and keep athletes in the sport, and this is a way that we're, we're doing it personally. We run, uh, right now we run about 300 camps and clinics a year. So there's a lot. Um, well, um, now because of the virus, we've had to shut down for a little while, but we'll be back. But, but, uh, so yeah, we, we, um, we end up, um, you know, working with over 10,000 athletes in the U S each year. Uh, and, and, um, so it's just a company that I believe in. It's a, it's an avenue that I wanted to get in. I was at the highest level of coaching for, 10 years and then I was a professional athlete myself before that so I've been in the highest level and like I said after two years in the sport I'd coach an Olympic champion so I just I got to the point where I stopped chasing that high performance level I felt like I'd, I'd been there done that you know I've been to five Olympics now um I've done everything I wanted to do at the highest level I felt like it was a time to go back to the grassroots and really help build the sport up and encourage young kids to to stay into the sport i love and and so now i'm finding ways to communicate and connect with with um you know the youth i've never dealt with them before um and that's a it's a really interesting thing to try and connect with younger kids and and um help you know um help develop their passion for the sport that, that i love so much you know you're a busy man. There's no doubt about that. Just give what you just said there, and you've uh, got a podcast out as well, which we'll get to in a minute. How do you manage to try and balance? I don't want to say how do you manage to balance because so many people uh, are still trying to find the ways. But how do you manage to try and find the way to balance work and home life with your family? Yeah, it's tough, man. You know, I think coaching coaching is tough, and it uh, definitely. Um, you know, drew a toll on, on myself and my family. And, and I think me wanting to leave college, you know, after being in the, co- the head coaching role for 10 years, um, it, it certainly burned me out. And, um, you know, on the outside looking in, it looks glamorous. You get paid a lot of money and, you, and you're very famous within the, the realm of swimming. And it's one of the most attractive looking jobs, but it's also, it comes at a high cost. And, um, you know, so after doing it for 10 years, I, I just needed to step back a little bit. Um, and so I decided to kind of uh, take this job with Fitter and Faster where I work from home primarily and then I travel on weekends to clinics. But it gave me a chance to, you know, take my kids to school for the first time in 10 years and be able to make lunches and make breakfasts for them and, and just be a father and while at the same time still being attached to the sport that I love. 
but coaching college was was very very tough. There's no doubt about that. What do you get up to away from swimming? Uh, I love MMA. I really got into MMA in the last couple of years. My son uh, has started some MMA training, and um, and so him and I, you know, travel actually to to fights um, around the country. Mm. You know, uh, we go to Vegas. I take him to Vegas when there's a big fight on. The last fight we went to was we went and watched Conor McGregor fight uh, in his comeback fight. Mm. So, you know, we do that. Um, that's something that my son and I connect with and, and we love it. You know, he's 17 now and, um, and it's just something that I, I really, I really love, I love sports psychology. So I love all sports, but I love the fact that they lock the cage and two men are facing off against each other. And, and one man is going to come out on top at the end of 25 minutes. You know, it's, uh, it's fascinating to me, the psychology that goes into that as well. Um, so that's that's one of my passions, but then I'm also you know I love I love movies. I like to I like to go to the movies. I like to watch movies, and um, so that's kind of the way that I turn my brain off as well. But um, but recently, I think like you mentioned, um, I, I did feel like there was something missing, and so I uh, decided to start my own podcast, and uh, that that happened a couple of months ago, and uh, it's just in. It's uh, baby stages, but uh, it's been going really well. It's something that I'm very passionate about now. Yeah, mate, Inside with Brett Hawke is the name of the podcast, so anyone out there can go check it out. Um, if you haven't listened already, it's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and, and a few other platforms, I'm sure. Firstly, congratulations. I've been listening to a few of the shows, um, and, and I'm loving it. And I guess coming from Australia, it's been really insightful for me, you know, constantly learning about these athletes that – you know, I haven't heard of before. I think my first one was um, Lenny Kraselberg, so I had heard of Lenny, so that sort of drew me to it. I saw Lenny, so oh, listen to Lenny, and that was fantastic, and then I, I went on from there. Um, what made you want to do a podcast? Like I said, I've been at the highest level for many years, and I'm, I'm very close with um, a lot of people that that – you know, the outside looking in, they would think, oh, I'd love to have a conversation with that person, you know. So I, this year I was I was on the team, the LA Current, with Lenny Kreselberg. And, and Lenny's one of these guys who's a three-time Olympic champion and, you know, he swam for the U.S., but he's got a great story as well. And so I'm sitting there and having conversations with him and I'm thinking, wow, there were so many people that would love to be just sitting here right now listening to this conversation, mm. you know, and... Uh, you know, I'm great friends with Grant Hackett, like I said, and, and Michael Klim, and, and some of the greatest athletes in our sports history. And, and then I'm very close with some of the greatest coaches in history. And so I have all these conversations all the time, and I'm thinking, man, so many people would just love to listen or ask questions or just just hear your story. So it's just something that uh, kept coming up. People were mentioning to me, why don't you start a podcast? Because I'm really into... Joe Rogan, I love I love listening to Joe Rogan's podcast. Yeah. I, I listen to all of them that come out. I'm I'm kind of addicted to his podcast, and and so people were just telling me all the time, "Why don't you start one? Why don't you start one? You work from home now. You've got time." And so it just kept coming up, and then um, and then Kobe Bryant ended up, uh, you know, dying tragically in the helicopter crash with with the eight other people and and his daughter as well, and. And it was just one of those moments that hit me. I've always been a Kobe fan, and I thought to myself, like, if I don't do this now, I'm never going to do it. So, 
so that you know a couple of days after kobe passed away and i got with somebody um and i said let's let's do this and and we just put one together just quickly randomly and um and it wasn't great, but it was it was something, and it was a start. And uh, so it's kind of built from there. A couple of months later, here we are. I'm just about to launch my 20th uh, episode, and uh, I'm just pumping them out now, and just just having conversations with with friends, really, and mm. and getting to know them and sharing their stories. Uh, that's what I'm passionate about. Well, mate, you're killing it. As I said, I've been enjoying it. And then actually one of the coaches uh, at uh, State put me onto it. He said, have you heard Brett Hawke's podcast? I said, oh, I've heard the podcast. So I went and checked it out. And as I said, Lenny Kraselberg was the first one, loved it. And I've been uh, listening ever since. I've got, you know, for my podcast here, a dream top five interviews that, if, you know, if I get those on the show and I get to interview them, you know, I'll die a happy man. Do, do you have your own dream top five or are you just sort of having these conversations as they come? Um, yeah, no, no, I don't, I don't really have a dream top five. I'm, I'm talking to some, some people that I just love talking to, you know, yeah. um, I, I haven't had a chance to interview my Australian friends yet because, uh, right now I'm talking to you, it's midnight and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and so it's just, <laughs> It's always awkward, you know. I yeah. can never line it up, and so I've I've started off talking to Americans and people that live in America. But I really want to get get out and get over and and talk to my friends. You know, Michael Clem and I. I, I was lining up going to the um, the Hall of Fame induction. He's about to get inducted into the, the Swimming World Hall of Fame next month, and it, and it just got postponed. But him and I had lined up to do the podcast and while we were together at that function and, and that got cancelled. So it's just, I, I just haven't got round to talking to my Australian buddies yet, but I'm going to get there soon. So that they're the next people on my list. Mate, 2019 was a historic year with the, uh, the start of the International Swim League. It kicked off in its first season and you were fortunate, as I said before, to be a part of the uh, LA Current. Now, for some of us at home watching, I mean, we thought it was fantastic. It was a great concept. Um, yeah, really entertaining and some fast racing. What was your take on it uh, as someone on the inside? Yeah, I loved all that too. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff. Um, but on the inside, I saw some of the areas where um, it, it either wasn't great or it could be better. And, and so they're the areas that we're trying to work on right now. Um, you know, I've agreed to to do uh, the second season with the LA Current and, and Lenny Graselberg. I love working for Lenny. He's amazing. Um, but, you know, I think there's there's things that need to improve. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm still skeptical about the way that it is, um, it is run from the top. But at the same time, I think we've got to give it time. And so you, you have to understand that it's just starting and it's going to progress and it's going to grow. And so... We're going to work through some of those issues, and and but on the outside looking in, yes, it's it's brilliant, mate. They we get the best athletes in the world get up and race for two hours and just bang it out, and um, and it's a great event. And it's a lot of fun, and they make some money, and and so I feel like just everybody's winning in that respect, you know. But I'm a competitive guy, and I don't like to lose, so I'm <laughs> I'm looking at this as like, you know, how can we make this fair so that we could we could have a shot at winning this mm. thing, you know? So we're, we're really digging into that a little bit more, you know? And one of the reasons I started 
this podcast and wanted to do it um, about swimming is because I, uh, you know, I love the sport and I felt over time that, you know, since the glory days of swimming in Australia and certainly when you were in the pool as well, um, you know, swimming here in our country has been sort of less and less relevant to the greater public. Now, with the success of the ISL, um, do you have anything that you think we could be doing to try and get back to those days where the stands were full? Like, I, I remember going 2007 to SOPAC, and uh, it was a duel in the pool, and America versus Australia. I just remember the, the stands were packed. Um, we haven't seen anything like that yeah. for a very long time. How do we get back to that? Yeah, I mean, we had, we had you know, we had personalities back in the day a little bit, I think. You know, like Kieran Perkins was uh, was was fascinating. He was an interesting guy. And, um, you know, we just had, we had some guys come along, some girls come along that, that were, that had personalities for sure. And I think, um, I think in some ways we're kind of, we're getting away from, you know, um, it's almost like we're saying all the right things and we're doing all the right things, but it's it's okay to to have your own personality and let that mm. let that shine a little bit, you know. Um, Jeff Hugel was a personality back in the day that, um, you know, like I said, Scotty Miller. These people, um, they definitely they definitely had charisma and they definitely had personalities. So I think it's just digging into that a little bit more and, and trying to develop those personalities, let them come out and. Um, and it's okay to be competitive. It's okay, you know. Like uh, I see that in MMA a lot. Like these fighters, when they're when they're about to fight each other, they they really go at each other, you know, verbally as well. And mm. so I think that's interesting, you know, to 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 say to someone, "I want to beat the hell out of you." That's okay, you mm. know. And then at the end of it, whoever wins, you shake the hand and you move on. But um, I think sometimes we're just a little bit too pretentious in swimming you know like we're a little too special so i'd like to see it um you know some personalities come out and then you know i think back in the day too swimming had some, i don't know what it's like in australia now but we had some incredible commentators um who would really get you engaged in mm. the racing and and uh, so like i said i don't know who's doing the commentary now but i know back in the day we had we had some incredible commentators yeah. that were doing some some stuff for us that really engaged the crowds as well. But um, so I don't know. But I think the ISL, the format of it, can I think once it spreads to Australia, I think it's really catchy, and I and I and I think it's going to really um, you know the the general public will embrace it a lot more. I think because it's a it's a two hour event. Top athletes in the world get up and race and. It's a type of format that I think people can really get into, and so that that part of it is very exciting. And I like to finish uh, our chats with some less serious questions, so we just get a little bit more uh, knowledge of of yourself away from the pool. Uh, what's your favourite music or artist? Favourite musical artist? Wow, that's a good one. Um, I grew up in the grunge era, so. Anytime grunge music comes on, I, I love grunge. But um, my my favorite band of all time is um, Guns N' Roses. Yeah. Very nice. Mate, books or movies? Movies, all day long. What's your favorite movie? Um, Godfather Part 2. Godfather Part 2. Good choice. And yeah, do you man, have, I love it. Do you have a fear? What's your biggest fear? My biggest fear, um, yeah, I, I hate snakes. 
I really hate snakes. Is and I grew up in Australia? Sydney. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I hate snakes, mate. And my biggest fear is being bitten by a poisonous snake. And, um, and yeah, I don't know why, but uh, snakes have always freaked me out. Mate, being a swimmer, you would have loved your feeds. What's your favorite meal? Uh, honestly, I could eat pasta all day long, so and it's so easy. I, I love pasta. I think the Italians just got it right, you know, and nailed it. But um, but these days, I'm I'm really into sushi. I had a couple of trips to Japan and um, really got into sushi as well. So they're the two go-tos for me. A little bit more swimming related now. Uh, who do you think your biggest rival was when you were in the pool coming up? Um, Ashley Callis, actually. Ashley and I got into it a few times. Um, he was he was actually on that relay team that won the gold medal in 2000. Mm. And um, But him and I, for many years, went back and forward as the top Australian sprinter, uh, especially in the 50 freestyles. And so... Him and I, um, you know, we actually we actually got into a little bit of a. a uh, it wasn't a fist fight because I think Ashley would have knocked my head off, but it was, uh, it was a little shoving match. He's a big a little guy. Shoving I, match on the. I interviewed him a few years yeah. ago, and yeah, he's a big man. <laughs> he's a big boy. I don't know what I was thinking, but I got in his face one day, and I thought, oh, that was a big mistake, Brett. You shouldn't have done that, but. Um, but uh, I, I mean, internationally, I don't know. I there were. It was all I could. I could never, I could never beat Peter Van and Hugenband. Any time I was next to Peter, I couldn't beat him. I just frustrated the hell out of me. Um, but uh, but I loved racing Gary Hall Jr. He was the he was the guy that I loved racing the most. He was a lot of fun. What about a teammate that was the biggest pest? Uh, biggest pest. I mean, yeah. Again, I, I think uh, Ashley and I weren't uh, weren't the best of friends, but we are now. We have a lot of respect for each other. Yeah, we love each other now. But we're just competitors, you know. So I think you know when you, when you know someone is that good, and and they just kind of rub you the wrong way, just, you don't love them. But um, yeah, I think I think that was probably the one. What about funniest teammate? Oh, uh, Grant Hackett, mate. Grant Hackett is funny. He is. Uh, he's an hilarious. He's hilarious. You know, I uh, always had a lot of fun with Grant Hackett, and um, I don't know if the whole world has seen that side of him. Uh, maybe they have, but um, but away from away from the cameras, Grant is funny as hell. What about the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Uh, uh quit swimming. You know, and become a surfer. That's the best advice I ever got. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's I told you that earlier, mate. That drove me for many years. So I was always the type of person that if you if someone told you uh, that you couldn't do something, I wanted to prove them wrong. So I always uh, fed off of that. I was never I was never into the compliments uh, or told how good I was necessarily. I always I always fed off somebody telling me I wasn't good enough. So that was the kind of fuel that I needed to to go further. You know. Hey, we'll finish with this one. If you were stuck in an elevator, pretty large elevator, yeah. uh, and you uh, you only had three people, you could pick three people to be in there, and we'll say that it can't be your family because otherwise, you know, we'll all get in trouble if we don't say our family. Uh, what three people in the world, past and present, you can go back in the past and and bring people back? Would you have in the elevator with you? I definitely have Joe Rogan. I told you I'm a fan of his. Mm. Um, I, I definitely have Conor McGregor because I think he's 
he's uh, he's a funny character. He would be for sure. Yeah, and then um, uh, who else would I have in there? Jeez, that's a good one. Um, uh, I'll probably take my son, you know, because uh, I, I want my son to be in have that experience with me, and uh, I'm. I want my I want, I'm I'm real proud father you know now and um, I want to spend as much time with my son as I possibly can to to teach him so he'd be, he'd be in there with me. Mate, fantastic! I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. I'll let you uh, I'll let you get to sleep. I know it's pretty late over there. Mate, thank you very much for coming on the show for a chat, and you've been really open and honest with us, and uh, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honour to uh, interview you. I hope you enjoyed the chat as well. Um, mate, we're looking forward to catching up again sometime in the future and all the best with your podcast. As I said, I'm loving it and you're killing it and I hope uh, a lot more Aussies start to get onto it and start listening as well. Great content, so why wouldn't you? Uh, until then, mate, thank you very much for uh, coming on Off The Block Swimming Podcast. Yeah, Robbie, appreciate it, mate, and good luck with your podcast. It's going great. Uh, listen to Gian's. It was awesome and uh, keep it going, mate. Congrats. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much.